Hello, everyone. This is Stephen Blush, and welcome to the next episode of the Art of the Interview podcast series. Today is your time to get schooled, which is why we call this Rock History 101 from the vaults. This past weekend commemorates 10 years since the passing of legendary rock vocalist Ronnie James Dio. Here's a backstage interview I did with Dio in June of 1997 where we spoke deep about his heavy metal history. Special thanks to Tony Mann for his magic touch in digitizing and editing this essential slice of rock culture. So without further ado, here is one hour of conversation with Ronnie James Dio on Rock History 101, part of the Art of the Interview podcast series, powered by the Blush Media Network. And tell us about Dio 97. We're finished. Thank God for that. Only because we've been on the road for such a long damn time. Mm-hmm. We've been on the road for, you know, 96 and 97, really. And uh, 10 months of it. Four tours of Europe, four tours of America, Japan, Alaska, parts of Canada. It's just been really, really long. I mean, we haven't been home any more than the time that it took for Vinny to have pneumonia. And then even some of that, he stayed home. And we went back on the road for about... Uh, Two weeks worth of work, uh, replacing him with, uh, uh, amazing, I can't remember who we replaced him with, like I don't know him that well. Um, you'd know him because he's the drummer of the Scorpions, James, James Kotek. God, sorry, James. Um, see, it turns it's been a long tour. Um, so we've seen a lot this year. We've seen uh, a lot different attitude, I think, from the amount of people who have come to the shows to the the aggression of the people who come to the shows than we did well, virtually three and a half years ago when we did the Strange Highways tour. Um, I don't know if that speaks of any kind of, uh, re- not recycling because I hate that word, but any kind of, you know, restrengthening of, uh, of what people haven't been able to hear for the last four or five years, at least get to see it now in a live situation. But I think it does. Um, the shows before were not as nearly as heavily populated, and the people I talk to now say, yeah, all right. We can rock and roll again. I'm granted the people that we play for. Uh, one being that most of the places are for over 21. We don't get a chance to connect with an awful lot of young people unless we do it at a store or uh, if unless we do play a place that happens to, to cater to both or if it's not a club. And, and then we, we do get a chance to talk to people. We see uh, you know, younger people who have been told by their brothers and sisters and older people probably that we should go check this band out. They're great. Uh, and it seems to work with them. Well, with the, with the people who, again, who seem to have been stuck in the closet for the last five or six or seven years, they, they seem to be really aggressive about it all. I'm real happy that it seems to be coming around again. Is that okay by you? Sure. Um, no. Well, I mean, it matters to me that, sometimes it matters to me that you, you only play for one kind of an audience. But, you know, economically, that's just the way it is. Uh, and, you know, we don't pretend to be, I never pretended to be anything other than what I am. I mean, once you get to a certain point in, in, your, in your age category, you know, as a band or as a person, you, know, you have to realize that rock and roll is a young person's medium made you know, for young, generally younger people played by the same people the same age. So we don't pretend to be out there going, yeah, we're going to start this wonderful revolution and they're you know, that's stupid. You know, we've, I've had wonderful runs with you know, three or four different bands and uh, it's nice though to be able to know that you've connected with younger people, that when they, you do talk to them, they go, wow, great, or they come up with a Holy Diver album. Well, that's nice, you know. Glad you like that, but you know it's nicer when they come up with a uh, Angry Machines album. Go, yeah, this is the stuff. So you know, as far as Angry Machines go, I think this album, in its more modern approach by us, has been uh, very gratifying. Uh, of course, on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the, the older people who will always want to hear things from Holy Diver, from Heaven and Hell, or from a Rainbow thing. You know, who don't want to get into the real world, want to get into today's world. But that's okay. That's the way they live their lives, and they are what they are, and they're the age that they are. So all in all, I think it's been. Uh, you know, very heartening and very successful for us, this, this tour with this album. This may sound like a general question, but I just thought in particular you'd have a good take on it is kind of what is the state of rock today? The state of metal? Well, the state of metal is very, still very precarious because there are no um, outlets for it. Uh, let me put it this way. There are so many fewer outlets than there ever used to be, especially in a radio format. There's just it's college radio, and that's about it. All the other stations have turned to... Uh, becoming Latino stations or country stations because it's the buck that rules, you know. That's just what that's all about. Um, advertisers don't want to spend their money for 
you know, long or dirty heavy metal people. They just don't want to. So I think the state of the state of it is no better than it was before. But I think the live situation is a little bit made up for that. But uh, I think that there's some healthy uh, rumblings out there, and I don't think that those healthy rumblings have anything to do with the amount of bands I see out there reforming. I don't think that's got anything to do with it. Those are people to me who couldn't succeed without having to reform again and coming back and making the same album and playing the same songs over and over again. I don't find that healthy at all. Again, I think the healthiest thing has always been a band like Soundgarden, who unfortunately we have no more, who bridged that gap, who were young, who were excellent at what they did, great singer, great players, great writers, uh, modern. That is gone. Um, let's hope there'll be something else to take its place. Doesn't it seem like there, I mean, you may have a take on this too, but it seems to me like, you know, every decade or so there's like an aversion to a rock and then a reaffirmation of it. Well, that's that recycling thing, you know, and I really hate that because I'm really a firm believer that you can't, I mean, bell bottoms came back and it lasted for 10 seconds, you know. Well, I think the same thing's going to happen unless music is made more modern. That's again why I mentioned someone like uh, Soundgarden. What it needs is, every, if it could happen every 10 years, are young people who really know what they're doing, who can really play and can really sing, a la Soundgarden. Again, I don't mean to keep holding them up as the banner, but they are the best example of, uh, of a band from the ilk of Zeppelins and, you know, and, and Dio's and Sabbaths and those kind of things. They're the people who were to pass the torch out, and they did for, you know, for, for a while. Um, that's what I find needs to be important, not anything else than that. I mean, the well, Reformation thing, I mean, I just, again, I find it people who couldn't succeed as being the ex-lead singer in Rat or, you know, the ex-lead singer in Warrant or whatever, who now suddenly are back in Warrant and Rat again. You know, and I mean, I know them all very well, and this is not a character condemnation at all, but it's just the truth. It's what's out there. You know, I mean, I heard it once, guys, I don't really want to hear it again. Unless you're going to do something really wonderful. Well, to me, the difference in reforming is the difference in what the Reformation I hear now is, which is no new product, no modern product, and what we did in Sabbath with the Dehumanizer album, which was an album everyone expected to be Heaven and Hell revisited, which turned out to be Dehumanizer, which was very modern and very different. That makes sense to me. Nothing else makes sense to me. If you're going to reform, do it because you've got a purpose, and that purpose should be to take steps forward, not to take them back. So the Reformation recycling thing, the guy I have no time for. Right. Um, why does it always come back to something as simple as a, a guitar? The, the primal stuff of rock. Because I mean, everyone, you know, everyone, you know this business. Everyone's so sophisticated. They're all, they have all these things that they try to propel, graft onto. Well, it. I think that's what that's one of the reasons why I failed so miserably. Well, suddenly we got into the into the the, uh, uh, the position of people not being able to be able to understand what was being played. I mean, you know, as great as guitar player as Steve Vai is, what did he do just then? I mean, you're talking about people who are basic people, people who. 90% of them really don't have that much of a clue about the intricacies of music, uh, whether it be you know, any kind of guitar playing, or certainly the kind of guitar playing that we hear from, you know, from, from Joe Satriani, from, from Steve Vai, etc., etc., or the people who, who, who contributed to the downfall of this music by wanting to play faster than anyone ever did before, and sacrificing, therefore, the basicness of the music which people react to. That's why they can always come back to what's basic. That's why punk became a replacement again, because it was not only social comment, which was important, but it was really damn simple. It was something that everyone could understand. Well, there was a guitar going, Aah! so like grunge was a little bit more important, too. It was a sound more than anything else, but it was basic. That's why uh, it always comes back to that simplicity of the guitar. I mean, we live in a guitar age. If we were talking 50 years ago, we probably would have been saying, well, why is it the trombone is always what we come back to, or Gene Krupa's drums, or whatever it may have been. So, you know, the guitar is the instrument of the age now. Uh, and the instrument of the age, because a lot more people can pick up a guitar and make noise with it that makes a little bit more sense than you can pick up a trombone and do the same thing. So, you know, it's the, it's become the, the, the voice piece uh, minus the vocalization of, uh, of people who are involved in rock and roll music. When we talk about, like, um, your earliest days, early days of Syracuse rock and all that, is, mm -hmm. I have a compilation record where it's Ronald Dio and Ronald. It was always Ronnie Dio. Remember right. Ronald? There was no James. It was right. Prophets. Right, right. Mm -hmm. What do you kind of tell us what you were doing then, what you were coming out of, what you were reacting to? Well, I mean, it was a time of very early inceptions of rock and roll, of course. Uh, so, you know, the things that were important there were um, what we copied, you know. The, and I, that, truthfully, it's been such a long time ago. I don't remember what we copied. You know, we copied whatever, pardon me, was fashionable, 
whatever was successful at the time, whether it was Elvis Presley or whatever came after it. Um, but it's not whatever I want, what I really wanted to do. I wanted to carry on. So briefly, you know, I would infuse the band with something I wrote or someone else in the band would suddenly come up with something else. But of course, it was the Beatles that made the great difference. So as the Beatles came along, uh, you could actually write your own material and be successful. Wow, isn't that cool? Of course, at that time, we were all copying Beatles songs, you know. But it gave us a reason. It gave us a purpose because someone else did it. Someone else could be, didn't have to be Mama's Boy. You could be the nasty little brats that the Beatles were and still write great music. Uh, so that's the kind of thing we were doing, but it's not what I wanted to do. I always wanted to get to the point of being you know, more a guy who was in Deep Purple than anything else. So when Purple and Zeppelin and those bands came along, I mean, that was, for me, what I eventually wanted to do. But, you know, the, the early beginnings were the best because I saw everything through new eyes. All the experiences were the first, and the experiences were with people I grew up with. So we all lived it vicariously through each other. And then, the, you know, of course, then through the music. And everything was different. Everything was a change. It wasn't like we're talking now about... You know, what happened to me 10 years ago happened 10 years before that, too. Well, nothing was new, but then everything was new. That was wonderful, though. And there was competition within the bands that were there in that area. You know, they're always battling the bands and that kind of thing. And you, and you, you know, you, see, you came up with it. You had an attitude. We're better than you, man. You know, it was, we were almost like, you know, we're a gang. It was a band, but it was a gang, you know. Kick your ass, that kind of thing. Um, then I guess that kind of leads into Elf and mm -hmm. all that. Um, when I guess that's a lot of the, the purple kind of stuff you're talking about. Also, when you kind of talk about what you were doing, what you learned from that experience, and also who kind of your contemporaries, like who, who were the rival bands, or the, the bands who you kind of felt like were your, your mates, or your... In what area, you mean? Yeah, or, or wherever. Well, at that time, you know, we had we had certainly we had ranged out to a, you know a, a, a real wide audience. I mean, we were now playing, you know, from from Maine to you know, South Carolina to you know Ohio to Illinois. Um, although we were still considered, you know, I probably considered myself a local band. We had really spread out because we were good at what we did, and I think college network made a great difference at the time. You played a lot of fraternity parties in those days. And people would come from other universities, and they would always, well, we got to have that band in our school. So, you know, before we knew it, we are playing Notre Dame. You know, whoa, pretty cool. Um, so our contemporaries and the people we, we were, you know, in competition with at that time were people like Ario Speedwagon, who were out there competing at the same time, and were not, you know, any more of a national act than we were. Um, Rush. Um, There's two, anyway. Those kind of people at that time, and those were the people we were competing with. Um, I guess that's a question you asked me. Yeah, what do you learn from? Because I mean, what do you learn from that whole experience in, in those days too? Because you never quite got the huge success, but it was definitely like a name that everyone knew. Well, you know, it wasn't really a recordable time either. You know, I mean, people made their money by playing live. You know, which is the thing I've always been proudest of anyway. I think that's what gets you from point A to point B is being a live musician. Um, but you know, I, I, again, I think that you learn to have an attitude. You learn to be proud of what you are. You learn to compete. Um, you start touching the fringes of success, and it makes you thirsty for more, which is probably the most important thing. When you get to that point, you start opening up to a lot of people. You know, we, we did, like, you know, opening up things for people like Slade, you know, those kind of bands, a lot of English bands would come over, and we'd be their opening act, or Purple, or Uriah Heep, those kind of people. And, you know, you see their success, and you see their formula, and it makes you want to be like that. And then you learn the things that you see that they do. And you, you start to emulate. I mean, that's what all young people do. They emulate, you know, others who are, who are either older or more successful than they do. So, you know, that's what it, it did for us. And we learned a lot of things and made friends, made contacts. That was what, again, gets you from, you know, now from point B to, to point C, to getting a chance to record for someone or to even audition for someone. So it was a New York time for us, you know. Going to the city was, I mean, the city was the way you went. You didn't go to Los Angeles then because all the works were in the city. So that's... You know, for Alf anyway, that's how we, we began it all, you know, with Clive Davis and then with uh, Roger Glover in any case. Yeah. Um, those were the earliest days of the term heavy metal. Yeah. And I just kind of, how, how that kind of notion, that concept kind of changed over the years. Uh, well, it got divided up, it got partitioned. That's what the problem was. All bands at that time were called heavy metal, whether it was. Slade, who probably weren't really a heavy metal band, and Purple, who I considered to be one, and Zeppelin, who I really didn't think was one. I thought Zeppelin were much more a bluesy kind of band, uh, you know, with a drummer from hell. I mean, that's to me what they were. Uh, but 
everyone was a heavy metal band at that time, and I think everyone wanted to be because it denoted specialness, it denoted different things. Then it started to get partitioned into something else. So that you had heavy metal, then, you know, of course, now we talk in terms of the same metal thing. You've got speed metal, death metal, etc., metal, etc., metal. And it's just that people needed to pigeonhole it. Maybe, maybe because there was so much that was termed metal that people needed to identify it a little bit more by putting it in different niches. And that's what they did. I mean, to me, you know, there were heavy metal bands and there weren't. You know, Purple was a heavy metal band to me. Um, Uriah Heap weren't a heavy metal band to me. Um, I just said the words, I, you know, I mean, there were very few that I thought were. I thought, I thought Grand Funk came pretty close to tell you the truth, because that was a big, blistering monster of a band. Um, but again, it's people just need to divide things up. That's, and it wasn't the musicians who did it, it's the media. We usually do it, and not people, not kids. Right. Now, Elf and your Roger Glover connection obviously went to the rainbow. Yes. Um, that must have been not an easy job to build first, was it? Which job? Coming into Rainbow with Blackmore. Well, we started the band, so there was no rainbow before me, right. so it didn't really matter, you know. I mean, all that happened was that Richie told me he wanted to form a band, another band outside of Purple, right. and he would like me to be the singer and songwriter with him in it. So there was no showing anybody else's role. Right, right. The pressure was on him, not with none on me. Right, right. For me, it was easy. For him, it was hard. He's right. the one who was scared to death, not me. Right. You know, for me, my answer was always, well, it'll be great. I mean, can you imagine, Richie, what a great guitar player you are and what a great singer and writer the two of us are? Mm-hmm. We're going to be incredible. And we got Cozy and we got Jimmy and, you know, well, at that time, we didn't have all the elf guys. Right, right. And um, Richie was very afraid of that. You don't go from that pinnacle of success to, to taking on this other thing that you don't know is gonna, whether it's going to be you know, accepted or not. Uh, so it wasn't a problem for me at all. Again, it was Richie. Richie came from this, this shadow of the purple he had to deal with. Mm-hmm. And I only came from being in a band with Richie. Right, right. The, the hardest part, if there was any, was you know, knowing how to deal with someone as violent as Richie, or as, you know, as strange as Richie you know, was at times. But that was never a problem for me. Uh, I saw how Gillen reacted to him and how he reacted to Gillen. He didn't like Ian Gillen. You know, Ian Gillen obviously didn't like him. And Richie would... You know, take the piss out of him every time he could, whether it be musically or especially musically. You know, try to upstage him or embarrass him on stage, and he did a great job of it too, because Richie was a master at that. But uh, he never didn't do that to me. He never did that to me. He respected me more than that, and he couldn't get away with it with me. Um, I was too good to do that. You know, and it's not a pat on my back. I'm not telling you how wonderful I am, but I know how to deal with people, and I'm secure enough in my talent that I wouldn't let him do that to me. You know, my attitude was always, if he did it to me once, I go, don't fuck with me. I won't, I won't put up with this from you. Okay, well, somebody stood up to me. See, there's a difference. Richie respects people who, who have respect for themselves and won't be made fools of. But if you let Richie take that advantage of you, then you're going to get trodden upon. It's just what he is. You know, and again, not a commentary, not a commentary, good or bad, upon Richie. I always got along with him. The question's always asked. Did you have a hard time with Richie? He's a real asshole. Never to me. I take his a fine. He was always gracious to me. He was always a good friend. And we made great music together. And I never had a problem with Richie ever. Do you see it as like your big breakthrough? I certainly did. I certainly saw it as a great opportunity to, you know, to become more of a national f- figure that way. But it's not something, that's the reason I did it. And if I had done it for that reason, I probably never would have wanted the guys in my band to be with me. You know, to me, it was a matter of, you know, again, we grew up together and, and I owed something to them. And if I didn't make it with Rainbow, I would have made it without. You know, I was confident enough in that, you know. Um, but the opportunity came and it was too good to pass up. Richie was my hero. I mean, to not have a chance to play with him would be something I would always look back upon and say, you can't do that, you've got to, you've got to take this opportunity. What are your fondest memories and or maybe biggest regrets of that particular aspect of your career? Rainbow? Yeah. I don't have any regret, regrets at all. No regrets at all. Things work out the way they're supposed to work out, and they did. You know, again, Richie's the kind of person who listens to others, talk to him all the time, and tell him, this could be better if you did that, or maybe you should get that guy in the band, or how about him? I know a singer, or I know a Richie listened to those people. I think it should be his greatest regret that he didn't keep this band together, that he didn't keep to stay together with me for a lot longer than he did. Uh, we were a magical team. And, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that off my own head because everybody tells me that, but I know how important those things were. When we first started, we were an underground band. Nobody knew who we were. You know, some people, there were some rumblings, but, you know, we didn't draw a lot of people to shows. You know, we'd go and play, played uh, uh, the uh, Maple Leaf Gardens and you know, they had to cut the thing down so we could accommodate the 800 people that came to the show. Just the way it was. We were an underground band, you know, who 20 years afterward, you know, 
wow, man, I saw every show you played. Yeah, right. And I saw Mickey Mantle when he was last time I went to. Um, I was first. Um, I so, remember a lot of shows. I mean, I don't know if it was your era or not, but just Blackmore shows or Ray Bush was always getting canceled. I just remember, like, that they would like, never no, happen. No, I didn't cancel ours. Most of the ones after that. We always did our shows. Mm-hmm. Always did ours. Uh, if there were cancellations, it was because of a technical problem that, that annoyed Richie about something. But no, we we rarely canceled. Um, that's something I've always been proud of. We hardly ever canceled any of our shows. And if, if, there, if they were canceled, it certainly wasn't because of, uh, of a musicianship problem. It was some other political reason. But no, it wasn't us. It was after, after. And I think that those things happened because Richie just got dissatisfied with who he was playing with. You know, he was like, oh, I don't want to do this tonight. Let's cancel this one. You know, I mean, when you're not happy, you don't want to do this all the time. I think that was the reason. But no, it wasn't my eye. It was someone else's. Um, I just, I mean, you don't have to comment on it, but I just always kind of felt like he blew it really bad. I mean, well, I think what happened with Richie was that Richie stayed the same. You know, he never went on to do anything but become more poppy. And I think that's what made the difference. The reason that I've been able to maintain some success and certainly did for a long period of time in a, in a block in a block period is because I never changed my attitudes. I only did one thing. I didn't say, well, gee, there's a good band I'm going to jump onto. Let's do that. No, it was always, this is what I do, and if you don't want to come in here, then you don't. If I don't play for anybody anymore, then I don't, but I've got the power of my own convictions. And people understand that. You can't fool people. People go, yeah, rock and roll, metal. You've always done it for us, man. You've always been there for us. Correct. When it came time for me to start writing the way I did, I wrote in this fantasy escapist kind of manner, and it didn't change. Through all the negative comments and through all the blistering bullshit that I had to take, oh, writing about that dragon rubber shit, well, guess what? It affected a lot of people. It was a wonderful thing to write about. You know, it just had its run for a while, that's all. And that's the reason why I wasn't a rainbow anymore. You know, I was writing material that was, you know, what he didn't want. He was, people were telling him, he got to write love songs, man. I don't write love songs, sorry, man. So, you know, that's why it broke off. Richie may tell you other things. He may tell you that it was Cozy and I who said something about, uh, well, we were pissed off because you were on the cover of a magazine and we weren't. Well, that's the most absurd thing I've ever heard in my life. If that's your reason why I broke up Richie, I feel really sorry for you, man, you know. Should be more of a man and go, hey, I don't like what you're writing, dude. You know, piss off, or at least come and tell us that you think that we made that statement. Because you and I wouldn't make that statement. We didn't care. Right. Didn't care. Mm-hmm. What was um? What did you ever listen? What was your would be your commentary on Latter Day? Uh, well, I just it just wasn't the band that we created. We created the band for a specific purpose and within a, a specific scope, and that was to be a very hard rock, more classically oriented band, which is why I wrote in that way. I wrote in a very classical, romantic kind of a, an attitude, not romance, but in a romantic area. And um, um, it degenerated, as far as I could see, into a pop fest with songs not written by the band anymore, not written by Richie anymore. You know, a lot of their, their hits, and two of their hits, what, Since You've Been Gone, and one other one that escapes me, thank God, was written by Russ Ballard, and, you know, that's what you want, mate. Go ahead. Um, I've always been one who's wanted to tailor what he does for himself. And I think that the reason it didn't work is because people just went, what's this pop crap you're trying to feed us? That's not what you were, Richie. But she came again from Purple, this incredible heavy metal band, to forming his own incredible heavy metal band, to then suddenly becoming a pop icon. And he had some success at it with a couple, for a couple of albums in a couple of years. And then people said, enough, the world has changed, and you haven't. And it went away. Um, and then, of course, your career goes to um, Black Sabbath, mm-hmm. and um, I think it's important to point out that I guess, I don't know if a lot of people realize that, like, Black Sabbath was at a real low point when you kind of came in, and you kind of... The lowest. Yeah, you kind of revived the career, and we can kind of talk about where things were at at that point, and kind of like how it snowballed into bigger and better things. Well... Well, being approached by, by Tony, we were going to first go to do something on our own, it was just going to be Tony and I and, you know, other musicians. And then Tony said, I've never played with any drum, a drummer other than Bill Ward, and I'd like to play with Bill. Okay. But I'd like to play with some other people, too, you know, I mean, unless you have some other plans. And, uh, and that was at the time when they were having their, uh, it was their, the 10th anniversary. And, uh, how's it that long ago? But I mean, their 10th anniversary, and uh, Tony decided that the money that was being offered to him for the 10th anniversary album and tour was more worth more than to do what we had talked about. So we lost contact for about two months. I was living in Connecticut at the time. Moved back to Los Angeles. Met Tony in a bar. 
just I'm sorry, I never got back to you with, the, with this 10th anniversary thing. It's alright, got a problem, you know, doing what I'm doing, more than happy. And he said, well, come on up to the house if you would, you know, I mean, we want you to meet Geezer and, and Bill. I said, okay, what the purpose is, but sure, okay. So I went up to the house that they were at, in Bella or somewhere. And uh, we talked, Ozzy wasn't there. And uh, Tony said, I've got some, you know, we got our gear in the, in the rehearsal place. You want to have lunch? I want to play something. So he went out and he played me this little piece and he said, you think you could do anything with that? And I said, well, if you give me a few minutes, I might be able to. So I went out in the corner and wrote uh, the first verse of the chorus, the intro of the children of the sea. He came back and he said, well, do you want to try it? And I went, yeah, sure. So he did. Bill got me on the drums, Geezer on the bass, Tony. We did children of the sea. Tony said to Geezer and Bill, that's it, I'm out of here. And he said, Ozzy's gone, he's fine, I'm, I'm working with him, and that's it. Geezer went, okay. And Bill went, okay. And next day, Tony fired Ozzy. That was the end of it. We went from there. Um, and I think what I instilled in that band the most was what I instilled in Rainbow, which is confidence in it. Look, we're going to be great. This is going to be brilliant, guys. Brilliant. And what else I gave them was that I took them into a different musical area, uh, but retaining the heaviness of what that band was always about, because I understood the heaviness that they were about. Others might have tried to take them in their own direction. I only wanted to have the freedom, which they, they gave me. To, do, to write whatever I wanted to do, but whatever I wanted to write was do me and heavy, and that's what I wanted to do. So I was just the right person for that band at that time. And uh, we persevered a lot together. Uh, Geezer left before we even started writing for uh, Heaven and Hell. Didn't come back in, until we had finished writing and went into the studio. We even had another bass player at the time. Actually, it was a bass player that played with me and Elf, Greg Ruben. And uh, when Geezer came back, and you know, great bass player that he was, made such a great difference as a player. And uh, that first album just stormed out of the, out of the gates. You know, no, no one thought it was going to do that. I don't think the record company thought it was going to do that. They just went, you know, it was kind of like the Holy Diver album. Oh, Black Sabbath, well, they haven't had a good record in 50 years. Well, yeah. Wow, it's stuck on the wall. Holy! But it was more a matter of fans picking up and going, wow, let's check this out. And they did it, it was a great album anyway. So it became famous and successful just on its own. And then, of course, yeah, the record company realized that they made it what it was, just as they did with Holy Dive. And that's what happens. But I was just the right person at the right place, and we were the right people to be together, because we really liked each other a lot, and we had a great time doing it. And we had a lot to overcome. I just kept telling them over and over again, this is such a great band, man, we're going to kick some serious butt. And we did. That was like the first real money those guys ever made in America, from what I gather, right? No, they did very well in America yeah. um, before that. The unfortunate yeah. part was that they were screwed out of that money before, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's the first that they were able to hang on to. It was the first time when, when they started to have a sense of, uh, of the responsibility of their money and took that responsibility for themselves and didn't allow managers who were screwing them up the behind to take control of their money. And that's why they started making money. And other people that were good family people who started you know, dealing with it, and they wanted their own homes, not in somebody else's name. So they had learned their lesson. It took them a long time to learn that lesson. But they finally did. Yeah, a lot of money was starting to be made then, yeah. That was the first money I made. Make anything in Rainbow in those days, in the early days? Shit, I mean, he wrote all the songs and it was a dime of anything, you know? Did eventually, though. Damn right I did eventually, because I had to put it in the press to do it. I had to put it in the press and I never made, it, made a dime before me. Uh-oh, uh-oh. So, you know, the money comes, comes quite regularly now, and, and it came in large portions. But the problem was, where was it when I needed it? Where was it when my wife and I were, you know, cashing in Coke bottles so we could eat that day? I mean, you know, you just come out of a successful band like that who goes off on its merry way, and happily selling records and playing gigs and leaving the other people by the wayside with no money for it. Mm-hmm. You, know? Um, you know, you learn lessons, but it was the first money I made was inside of the first real money. And then the, another windfall came in with, you know, with Rainbow once the, uh, the knife was put to the throat, right. so to speak. Um, Mob Rules and Heaven and Hell uh, are the only successful uh, Sabbath records outside of obviously the first couple ones, and I just there's the one lineup that worked. And the live album. Yeah, the live album, of course. Of course. Um, to what do you attribute that to? I mean, why didn't why did it work with you and not work with, I don't know, Ian Gillen or whatever Tony ever tried or, or Because he chose the wrong people. They always chose the wrong people. Just like Richie, they were too big for them for themselves. Too big for their own bridges. They needed so desperately to screw people mm-hmm. to say, They don't need you anymore. We're black seven. No, you are. I said it became Black Sabbath again when the four of us got together and did it again and made it successful. And the rest of it, you know, I mean, someone had to be aimed on and it happened to be me. 
for you know for whatever their reasons are. I, mean, I know the real reasons. Whatever the reasons are, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. I mean, being able to get back together again proves that somebody must have been wrong. It wasn't me because I didn't approach them. Um, with the rest of the people, they just chose the wrong people. They chose chose people who did not write. You know, Ian Gillen writes these horrendous pieces of crap called what Rosie O'Grady or Rosie Lopez or something. Who cares, Ian? I don't care about the chick you met on the plane. Guess what? Nor does anybody else. All they care about is this is Black Sabbath. Black Sabbath is this huge monster. That's what I always picture. This monster that comes to town going. And you don't write about you know banal little stupid subjects like that. You write about gritty kind of good things. You know songs like Heaven and Hell, like Voodoo, like the Mob Rules, like Neon Nights. Things that you know whack you in the head. And all the things that came after it were to me when Tony Martin started to do whatever Tony Martin was doing. Whoever was writing that rubbish. Uh, they just became a very bad rainbow, a really bad rainbow. Yeah, I can't help but think from what you're describing that Tony Iommi went through the same exact thing that uh, exactly. That That's exactly what he did. You know, isn't it funny that the person they got rid of both times happened to be me, and the one who put him on the map didn't do it? Again, you know, there are reasons why it shouldn't have remained together. Of course, you know, and those reasons I'm sure are very strong in Tony's mind, perhaps today, and and they're very strong in mine. I know what the situation was. It's just unfortunate that. I mean, these are people who you just mentioned got screwed all their lives. That would be a reason why people get screwed all their lives. Mm -hmm. And it usually is because they're not bright enough to deal with most things. Right. If you're not bright enough to deal with the, getting screwed out of your money, you're probably not bright enough to deal with your, with your, uh, your musical life either. And that's what happened. It just became this, you know, we, we became huge again. And they started to think of, as the Sabbath of old. We're huge and we don't need you. Right. And it's just what happens, you know. It's too bad. But, you know, Geese and I stayed close all the time. Um, you know, he knew it wasn't, it wasn't my fault. Uh, Billy stayed, I stayed close with Billy all the time. He certainly knew it wasn't my fault. And look what happened to them. They got turfed out by Tony too, didn't they? You know, they went and did other things because they didn't want to be involved in something that embarrassed them. And what embarrassed them was, even though Geezer went back and played with, him, with Tony Martin for one thing, he hated it. You know, this is not what Sabbath is all about. Geezer was exactly like me. His pride was in Sabbath. His whole pride was in Sabbath. This man, he started a band that he loved. He had to leave too because he just couldn't take Gilles Bangles solos anymore. Mm -hmm. I get the idea when I was talking to Geezer that the, what the primary riffs was over publishing, over um, over whether you deserve a piece of old songs you were performing. I never got a piece of old songs. That's bullshit. That's absolutely untrue. I have no idea where these people are coming from when they say that. Mm -hmm. The only publisher I ever took was a publishing that I wrote. Mm -hmm. I would say, in retrospect, it's strange to me that Geezer got credit for anything on Heaven and Hell. He wasn't even there. Yeah, but yet I'm at fault because I asked for I never asked for anything I didn't deserve. And I never asked for anything from their old songs. I think they should kiss my ass every day for for my going out and singing those things and selling their old their back catalog. That's what that's what I, that's what I deserve. But I never asked for that, and I never got it. So I have no idea what Geezer thinks the problems were. The problems were always with Tony. The problems were never with Geezer. They were always with Tony. Having the problems with that band always come back to Tony. Tony is Black Sabbath. Yeah. You know, he is the one who created. He's the one who created the sound that everyone copies today. He is Black Sabbath. There is no doubt up in my mind. But he should have known when to stop. He should have known when the time that when he was tainting it so badly, it was time to stop and call his band Tony Iommi and the Tony Tones or something or Boston, whatever. He should have been smart enough to do that, and he wasn't. You know, it's too bad. But these things happen, and you know, you have to forgive those things. You know, I'm not pissed off about them. I'm not. I get angry when when I hear things that are untrue, such as the publishing thing. I mean, that's just the most absurd thing I've ever heard. And if you confronted Geezer with that right now in this room, he would go, "Oh no, he never asked for any of that." Because that's the truth. I go, "Why? Why would I ask for anything like that? There's nothing to do with me." You know, plus the fact that I don't want any of that shit anyway. Um, what would you consider your highlights and lowlights? Well, I mean, it always would be the first band Elf would always be a highlight for me, the very first time. Because I saw everything in the world for the first time with people I really liked who had no access to go out with each other. A second high point would have to be opening for Purple all those years with Elf. Elf, that was, that was absolutely wonderful. That was such a great band, such an incredible band. With Gil and then, of course, after with Glenn and David, who I, I thought was a better band than them, much better band. That's how much more do we need to do, Steve? Uh, well, I could probably go for a while, so give me about uh, 15 minutes, maybe I'll talk to him.
Okay, can we do 15 more minutes? We have to go now. We have to go now. Can we do something with the gig? You gotta go to the gig. Do something with the gig. Okay, That'll be easier. Stuff in terms of achievement because I kind of see a lot of your stuff in other bands. Well, I think I've always been proud of it. But the fact that we were able to carry on after the Sabbath thing went away in '83, late '82, and that uh, we were able to do the same as we did kind of in Sabbath and uh, in certainly in Rainbow, in that we formed something new, something different, and it succeeded. And that probably the most proud, proudest part for me is the same as I mentioned with the uh, Heaven and Hell album, and that is that it was a, an album accepted by the public as opposed to being shoved on anybody's throat by a record company who didn't put anything in it because I can tell you a very interesting story about that. Um, it was the first album that I totally produced. I learned a lot about production from being in Rainbow and watching Martin Birch, who was our producer, who I thought was the best. He's such a great engineer, such a great person. Um, and then Martin, uh, after I joined Sabbath, um, I got Martin to, to do that album again. I want to really take credit for that one, probably somebody else. Uh, I called Martin, Martin said, yeah. He's, first he said, uh, who? He said, trust me, Martin, it'll be good. He went, I don't know, man, I don't really stuff. I said, trust me, it'll be good. So Martin came and, you know, he liked the project and everybody fell in love with Martin. So anyway, mm-hmm. uh, uh, after I'd gone from Sabbath, I said, okay, well, I've got this album to do because contractually I was, you know, I had a three-album deal with Warner Brothers mm-hmm. uh, any time I wanted to do it. But I didn't do it. I never never touched it until I wasn't in Sabbath anymore. You know, I mean, I had the deal and, of course, as usual, there's always, you know, he's going I don't know where he's going to be. He's saving the best material for himself. So, why do people think that of me? I, I wouldn't know because I'm a band person. I'm not anything else but a band person. So anyway, we uh, we began to do the album. I said, look, we're going to have to do it. Now, Wendy was managing me at the time. We're going to do the album now. So we went, chopped off a studio, found one we liked, uh, used uh, the guy who was our upfront mixer, who was a guy who grew up with uh, Vinny, Angelo Arcuri, who did uh, our first four or five albums. And uh, he had never, produ- never engineered an album before. I had really never produced one before, but felt confident and so did he. So we got to studio. We were in, we were in, in the studio for about two weeks. Warner Brothers called. We were sending the bills to them, obviously, because they're supposed to pay them. So, what's going on? Um, well, we're doing the album, one of the albums that we own. Um, could we send someone down to, uh, to uh, check this out? We go, well, actually, could Ronnie come to Warner Brothers because we needed to speak to Ted Templeman. Ted Templeman was out of at the time. And so said, this is obviously uh, an audition with Ted, is it? You know, because maybe they think, well, we're spending this kind of money. We want someone else to come along and do it, you know. So uh, I, we went to Warner Brothers. The appointment was for 10 o'clock in the morning. Got there at 10, about 10.30, Ted wobbled in. He goes, who the hell called this meeting at 10 o'clock? He goes, I got so drunk last time. I said, well, join the club, but we're here too, pal. Yeah. And he goes, so what's this all about anyway? I said, well, you have to tell me, Ted. I mean, I've met Ted before. I said, you have to tell me. Um, you know, he told us to come and speak to you. And he goes, oh, yeah, right, right. I said, you're producing the album for yourself, right? I go, yeah. He said, so what are you talking to me for? I said, they told me we had to do this. He went, have a good one, man. So we thought, so we went and did it. Nobody came down from one of us until like the last day the album was all finished. We came down and they heard Rainbow with that album. We loved that. That was my own favorite song of the album. I wanted to get rid of it, but the band talked me into keeping it. So we finished the product and uh, they went as usual. Uh, who knows what's going to happen with this thing, so screw it. So we. Uh, um, the album was released uh, within a week. Within a week, the damn thing was, uh, you know, people were playing the hell out of it. Going, we went from playing one show in the afternoon um, in uh, in San Jose to doing double shows every day. Every place we played, we could have done the ten. The first gig we did was uh, for 3,000 people in a place called a concert bar, an old cattle bar. And uh, we probably broke the record that they held there that day. So it was all up for us. That was the proudest moment of my life, being able to produce the record. And succeeding when nobody really thought we could. Right. Because, I mean, I don't know if it was just coincidence, but I kind of felt like the return of metal and all that kind of coincided with, with your albums. And then I think about that million-dollar stage production tour. Yeah, well, I must tell you, Steve, that I think that the two outstanding times that were... I mean, actually, I was involved in three pretty classic albums. 
uh, and Tigers. One was the, the first, the, certainly the second Rainbow album, Rainbow Rising. Uh, but also, Heaven and Hell album, which again was greeted with, wow, they've revived this form of music again because that album was so successful. And Holy Diver, which did exactly the same thing. Wow, they this has given things new life. I mean, that was wonderful that people thought that. Uh, I didn't, but I'm glad that they did. Great that they did. How does um, Dio music, uh, how do you deal with the music differently than in all your other various uh, successful Well, I think that initially the Dio music was really a cross between Rainbow and Sabbath, which is probably what it should have been. Uh, Sabbath didn't quite go that direction because, uh, uh, well, and, and rightfully so, because Tony didn't play the way Viv did. I mean, put it the other way. Viv didn't play the way Tony did. Viv thought in more poppy, bluesy kind of terms when Tony was a monster. So I had to deal with, you know, being the singer and writer in Sabbath and now uh, aligning myself with someone who was, you know, a lot more um, um, airy, airy fairy than you know what Tony was. So, I mean, it worked. The combination worked, but uh, it, it really, to me, was a combination of, of Rainbow and and, uh, and Sabbath. And I mean, I guess it created its own little niche in the world because you know Viv was Viv, and because you know Vinny was Vinny, and you know for all of the individual reasons. Um, but I always intended it to be. Sabbath rainbow kind of thing, but not as much as what we've become, because we've really become what I want it to be, which is a lot more Sabbath than Right. Than Who would you consider as your contemporaries? Like, who are your, on your, on a par with you? Oh, God, I, I don't know. Um, I, I hate to put myself in a league with anybody else, you know. I'm, I just do what I do, and I, I don't know if I'm really worthy of... Jeez, I don't know. I don't know. I really don't know. You know, I never, I never think about that. I, you know, it's never been a competitive thing to me. And I don't know what the story is on that. Only that I've been really lucky to be able to be accepted by people, as opposed to having my contemporaries go over there. But I guess probably Maiden, guys in Maiden, and you know, Dio and Maiden and Priest, and but more Maiden in that era than, than anything else. I'd say we were we were pretty closely aligned, Maiden and Dio. We had you know, big stage sets together. We had one year even had the same Egyptian theme. Um, and we were all really good friends. Um, so probably at Scorps, I think Scorpions have always been really good friends of mine. Especially Klaus, from the Rainbow days, I first met Klaus on Rainbow. And we've always stayed really close. So most people, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you've seen some of all these different generations of rock. Which do you think are some of the best, and which are some of the which were some of the leaders of of uh, the most recent, you know, decade, two decades of rock? Again, I think Soundgarden, what they call it, kind of, kind of at the end of the spectrum. Soundgarden for their music and their writing and their talent. Uh, Tool for their videos. Uh, without a doubt, Tool. Um, let's see. Uh, other peaks and valleys. I think that would have Absolutely. Dual album. Yeah. Um, I mean, was like disco a real low point? I'm sorry. Was like disco a real low point? Oh yeah, that was that was horrendous. Was I mean, did you were you walking through that room and we just came into here? <laughs> was like my worst nightmare. That's why I stopped in the middle of the room. Right. The point, the John Travolta point. Yeah. I mean, the Bee Gees know what they did, and I think they realized that they well, they were the the anti you know, the anti pasta. <laughs> they were the antichrist of, of music, and they realized that. You know, they sometimes go, well, we don't really want our rock bands hated because we. Came out with this called Saturday kind of stuff. Yeah, that was a, that was a real low point. I think you know, disco stuff was. Um, again, punk. I never found it to be a low point. I found it to be very exhilarating and, and a good ride. Um, and again, socially, I, I love the social comment. Mm-hmm. Um, How about um, you know, there's the whole term of goth and gothic, and I kind of feel like the gothic imagery you were very kind of pronounced and putting out. Yes, but it's, it has a whole different notion today, goth. Yeah, well, I think I, I like to think that mine wasn't that childish gothic. I hear a lot of it, not necessarily now, but I certainly did at that time. When, you know, and I get a lot of tapes given to me by people on the road, you know, and they think that their interpretation of their gothicness is, uh, you know, this, this co- almost comic book kind of thing. And that's, see, I pride myself on being a, an intelligent person who's well-spoken, who's well-read, uh, who's had a good education, and who's taken that and, and stuck it inside of what could could be a rather stupid genre sometimes, you know, metal. Uh, and I think that's always been my my, my strength, and that you know I, I give intelligent attitudes to people and make them think and make them use their brain, use their, their imagination. That's a mind difference from the gothic of what maybe today. I think the gothicness of today also has gone to a you know to a real nth degree as well. 
now. It's going very far. Right, 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 right. Uh, and again, it's far to the comic book sector. Side what was the real deal with um, your leaving after Dehumanizer and the show with Alfred? Well, uh, I, I told him, you know, like, we had a tour to do, like, it was about two and a half months, and I told him, uh, we'll come back to my state. And uh, we were supposed to be playing in Long Beach, California, and uh, our own show, just as they all had been. I mean, I got in that band not to be in the shadow of anyone else. I wanted to be in Sabbath again. And that's what, you know, again, I told you how much my, my point of pride about that band. And so when I was told, told, not asked, told, I mean, I was supposed to be a you know, fourth member of that band, certainly three. Many, many wasn't even included in us, it was me and Tony and Geezer. And uh, I wasn't asked, I was told, we'll now be opening for Ozzy Osbourne. And I said, no, I won't. I won't do that. I'm telling you now, two and a half months before, I'm not going to do that. So if you want me to say this band, don't do that. Or whatever you want to do, I'm not going to do that. Show Two months down the line, we had no communication. So we never talked about it. They never mentioned it. I just, I told them. Well, once I'm not going to do it. Finally, like, well, so you're going to do this show. I told you I wasn't going to do it then. I'm telling you, I'm not going to do it. Well, what will we do? So during sound checks and stuff, they went and got Rob and snuck Rob in the back door. They didn't sneak Rob in because Rob called me and said, that's going to do this. And I won't do it again. Rob said, because Rob already tried So they said, go ahead and do whatever you need to do. Man. Don't you worry about it. No problem. So they went and they did their thing and they were able to do their Symptomy Universe and all the old songs that they were so itching to do. And so they went and brought the band up because it was so important for them to make the money and to do what I knew was going to happen anyway. And that's what I was every evening. That's what it was all about. Right. More money, and also reunion. And that's what they did. They played the shows and they had also reunion. And I was at the end of the day, well, I was just kidding. Not you. Very well deserved. Good for you, Ozzy. That was that was it. That was you know, plain and simple, that was it. I knew what was going to come, I knew it was going to be the end anyway, so why should I go there? Play two shows under the auspices of a guy who, you know, not only said bad things about me, Ozzy, but he said ten times worse things about Tony. And Tony was my mate. You know? So here I am fighting Tony's battles. I'm proud of Tony and I was fighting for him. And Tony's in the meantime going, fuck you, I'm gonna go play up with this kid with Ozzy. So uh, that in a nutshell is what happened. That's why I was over. What you learned from all that? anything or think in terms of I'm not in that band anymore because of the album after that anyway was strange I was uh, and that would have been more close to the mark but no I don't do that I don't write songs about anybody or, you know I don't have access to grind that makes no sense not when it comes to music because music is music it's not uh, it's not a, a revenge situation so well it didn't do anything more for me other than make me happy I wasn't in that situation anymore because it got very tenuous it was very difficult to smile a lot you know? I mean, it was a matter of they were in the back of the bus and I was in the front of the bus where Vinny and I were in the front and Tony and were in the back right. and that doesn't make for you know happy bedfellows you don't make a music that way but I must say in deference to myself and to them even through, through it all you know we went out and we performed you know very very well we never left that and we always did you know a great job and never screwed each other on stage you know professionals don't do that but I enjoyed the tour very much I enjoyed it right up to the last day the last day in San Francisco and everybody just down the bus and left never said enough goodbye just left left me there standing there and I was on that stage ready to say that you were doing an encore they were down clothes changed on the bus goodbye that was a bit hurtful but right, right, sure, sure. such is life what do you uh, 25 years what are you proudest of in terms of your career of what career of Brian James Dale uh, I'm just proud I'm proudest of the acceptance of that I'm, I'm proudest of the love that I've been given by all the people who come, who come to see me all these years through all the bands and I see that every night when I go out and sign all the rest of kids you know I mean you can't buy that kind of love you just can't do it so people who don't sign things the people who don't give back to what those key people are giving you are fools first I'm not a fool and secondly as I said you can't buy that kind of affection and I learn from people I write for people I don't write about them I write for them and how else am I going to know what to write about unless I write for them so uh, the proudest thing for me has always been the people who have loved me who have given me great affection because they know I'm genuine you know, those are the people who are genuine so they know I am so anything they read in a, in a paper about me being an asshole being this being that they know the difference there are others out there who will never believe that I'm not those things those people who've been with me through this great ride I've had will always be there for me and that's they're the most important to me well this is quite a testimony all these years you know of records and you know, yeah longevity certainly is a, I think a good flag to be thrown oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
as long as I haven't done it uh, so that it's, it's been a stagnant ride. Right. That would have bothered me. I never I would have stopped long ago if that's what it had been. But it's not been stagnant. It's been it's been exhilarating. It's been uh, it's been what I expected it to be. And it can go on as long as the people and I choose to let it go on. And well it will be they who will tell me what to stop. It won't be me who says, well, I think I'll keep doing this some more because I don't want to get to the position where, you know, I'm some Russian or husband who's just out there doing it because, uh, you know, he's going to, he, he can't get this, you know, this sawdust out of his veins. Uh, I can get it out of my veins pretty easily as long as they tell me, time's over, it's time to stop. So is they'll it, tell me. Is it so, maybe in some ways, is it more fun now? Because you've learned from that. It's always been fun to me. Yeah. It's been fun to me playing for 100,000 people at the Coliseum. As much fun as it's been for playing for 40 people at some place in Saskatoon, you know, uh, Saskatchewan. It doesn't matter to me. It started this way. It started playing in bars. Drew more people sometimes with Elf than I've drawn with this band. But that's the sound of the times. You know, it's an economically depressed time. So we're almost finished. Um, but the proudest for me is to play under these circumstances and have nothing to hide me. Because that's another accusation that can be made you know, for people like me. Oh, you this dragon there, man. You know what I mean? Honestly, it didn't make any difference to the music. I didn't look at the dragon. I didn't turn around and go, wow, a dragon. I think I'll sing that. I didn't know what was behind me. I mean, I knew it was there, but I didn't play to the to that. That was only meant to be extra. That was only meant for me to pay back people. So I couldn't take it all that money, which amounted to probably, at the end of the day, probably about a million dollars in state sets that I had to pay for myself. You just pay for that. I paid for it. Um, and that was my way of saying, this is more for you. You know, this is, you deserve this. You paid 25 bucks for a ticket just now. I want to make sure you get $40 worth of entertainment. It was so important to me to do that. Um, that was one of my proudest moments, too, to be able to do that for people, to give them that back. But, you know, this is the kind of world where you can't win. You know, if you do too much, you're an egotistical asshole. If you do too little, you're not giving enough. So you can't win. But I've won. I've won all the way down the line. Just by that one person that comes up to me was, man, the songs you wrote, it got me through the hardest times of my life. Without having you to listen to, I probably would have been dead by now. Some friends I know would have been dead by now. You know, um, you, you've made my life important. And I did my job because I wrote the songs for those people. You know, granted, I probably was miserable at the time too, but I'm maybe translating my misery into their misery for them. Because I always have a tendency to write for really lonely people from too fat, too tall, too skinny, too long, those kind of things. Because I always like to be small. I always never bother me. I don't give a shit how small I am. My voice is bigger than all of us. I don't care. But I, I, I really had a tendency to write for them because I knew how important it was not to have anyone to speak up for you, you know, for that poor, underrated soul. And that's again why, you know, I get all this love from people, especially um, the people I see, all those people I can see who are condemned for being, you know, they didn't look like they should have been on the cover of Al magazine, you know. So, anyway, that's, that's, that's all been a highlight for me. I regret nothing, nothing, nothing. And I just want to say for the record, the dragon is cool. That was Ronnie James Dio. What an incredible interview. This is Stephen Blush. We'll catch you next time on the Art of the Interview podcast series, sponsored by the Blush Media Network.